Welcome. We hope you enjoy this recording from Christ City Church, based in Dublin, Ireland. For more podcasts and information on the church, please visit ChristCityChurch.ie. Thank you for listening. So Judges 17. Now a man named Micah from the hill country of Ephraim said to his mother, The 1,100 shekels of silver that were taken from you and about which I heard you utter a curse, I have that silver with me. I took it. Then his mother said, The Lord bless you, my son. When he returned to the 1,100 shekels of silver to his mother, she said, I solemnly consecrate my silver to the Lord for my son to make an image overlaid with silver. I will give it back to you. So after he returned the silver to his mother, she took 200 shekels of silver and gave them to a silversmith who used them to make the idol. And it was put in Micah's house. Now this man Micah had a shrine and he made an ephod and some household gods and installed one of his sons as his priest. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. A young Levite from Bethlehem in Judah who had been living with the clan within the clan of Judah, left that town in search of some other place to stay. On his way, he came to Micah's house in the hill country of Ephraim. Micah asked him, where are you from? I'm a Levite from Bethlehem in Judah, he said, and I'm looking for a place to stay. Then Micah said to him, live with me and be my father and priest, and I'll give you 10 shekels of silver a year, your clothes and your food. So the Levite agreed to live with him, and the young man became like one of his sons to him. Then Micah installed the Levite, and the young man became his priest and lived in his house. And Micah said, Now I know the Lord will be good to me, since this Levite has become my priest. Sorry, and then the last line of Judges 18. Oh, sorry, the last line of the passage, Judges 18, verse 1. See at the bottom there? In those days Israel had no king. And in those days, the tribe of the Danites were seeking a place of their own where they might settle because they had not yet come into inheritance among the tribes of Israel. The key line there being in those days, Israel had no king. So what we're doing today is we're going through the last five chapters of Judges, 1721. So rather than read them all out, what I thought would be better is to do a sort of highlights tour. So we've had the first key passage in the whole chunk, and now I'm going to fill in the blanks before we get to the next passage. So let me fill in the blanks. Now... Remember that Israel at the time was made up of 12 tribes, each tribe descending from one of the 12 sons of Jacob. And each tribe had been allotted a specific territory of land. Now, one of those tribes, the Danites coming from Dan, had begun to feel a bit disgruntled about their territory. And this is what happens in chapter 19 that we're not reading. They become a bit disgruntled about their territory. And in chapter 18, the Danites say to themselves, do you know, we really, we really aren't very happy with our plot, and we're going to form an army, and we're going to t- go and take the land of Ephraim. So off they go, wage war, and take the land that they want. Interestingly, along the way, and hence the connection with what we've just had read, they pass by Micah's house, and they steal his silver idol. And Micah's Levite priest thinks to himself, well, if you can't beat them, join them, and he heads off with the Danites too. So what Judges tends to do is it tends to zoom in and focus on a specific story of one individual, as it has just done with Micah. And then it zooms back out and explains the wider social context. So 17, as we've just done with Micah, zoom in. Now chapter 18, which we're not reading, zoom back out. Let's explain the wider movements of the Danites. And then chapter 19, what we're about to come to and have read, is another zoom back in, as the author introduces us to a different Levite who is living in Ephraim. 
Um, Faye, Faye's gone for Ephraim. I was telling her in the car, Ephraim. She thought I was taking the mick out of her, but I think it is Ephraim. But then I decided that, well, no one really knows because no one's actually pronounced this in the authentic Hebrew language for 3,000 years, but we're going to go with Ephraim. <laughs> so Ephraim, the land the Danites have invaded. So the Levite in the chapter we're about to read, listen carefully, is a very odd story, and we're meant to be a bit shocked by it. So his partner is a concubine. In other words, a prostitute. She has been unfaithful to him and has now run back to her father. Well, the Levite, still very much in love, as we're about to see, goes back to win her back from her father. And by the middle of chapter 19, this is what we're missing. The Levite has survived his father-in-law's relentless hospitality, got his partner back, got his, his concubine back, and is now heading back to Ephraim. And on the way back home, he stops at a town called Gilbeah, where he's invited to stay the night at the home of a local old man. Now, here's where the story becomes very bleak indeed. And it's a good thing we've sent the children out because it really does get ugly. So brace yourselves. Be ready to be shocked by what happens to this man when he heads into Gilbia. Be ready to be shocked by how far Israel has fallen. So let's pick up again at 19 verse 20. You are welcome at my house, the old man said. Let me supply whatever you need. Only don't spend the night in the square. So he took him into his house and fed his donkeys. After they had washed their feet, they had something to eat and drink. While they were enjoying themselves, some of the wicked men of the city surrounded the house. Pounding on the door, they shouted to the old man who owned the house, Bring out the man who came to your house so we can have sex with him. The owner of the house went outside and said to them, No, my friends, don't be so vile. Since this man is my guest, don't do this outrageous thing. Look, here is my virgin daughter, and his concubine. I will bring them out to you now, and you can use them and do to them whatever you wish. But as for this man, don't do such an outrageous thing. But the men would not listen to him. So the man took his concubine and sent her outside to them, and they raped her and abused her throughout the night, and at dawn they let her go. At daybreak, the woman went back to the house where her master was staying, fell down at the door and lay there until daylight. When her master got up in the morning and opened the door of the house and stepped out to continue on his way, there lay his concubine fallen in the doorway of the house with her hands on the threshold. He said to her, get up, let's go. But there was no answer. Then the man put her, put her on his donkey and set out for home. When he reached home, he took a knife and cut up his concubine, limb by limb, into 12 parts, and sent them into the areas of Israel. Everyone who saw it was saying to one another, such a thing has never been seen or done, not since the day the Israelites came out of Egypt. Just imagine, we must do something, so speak up. Yeah, look, it's horrific stuff. I hope you are listening, it's horrific. And I hope you're shocked. In the Bible, this? Well, the point is you're meant to be shocked. I hope you're not hearing this and thinking, lol, reminds me of last Friday night. No, it doesn't remind you of last Friday night because if it did, you would be in jail, and rightly so. This is brutal, appalling stuff. And indeed, the rest of Israel was appalled too. That's why in the next chapter, chapter 20, that we're skipping out, Israel say to themselves, look, we're all up for anything goes around here, okay? We're, we're up for anything goes, but this really is a step too far. What happened in Gilbia is a step too far. We really can't be having this. So, says Israel, let's form an army and punish the people who have done this. 
This is one step too far. We're going to march into Gilbia and punish the guilty party. That's what the Israelites say to themselves, and you would have thought rightly so. But the Benjaminites, the inhabitants of Gilbia, say, hold on, the rest of Israel, hold on, we'll deal with this matter internally. We'll do internal discipline here. You're not going to come in here and punish a group of our men. So what happened next? Well, for the first major time in Israel's history, civil war. The Benjaminites against the rest of Israel. And the rest of chapter 20 and the start of chapter 21 details this horrible civil war. The civil war is long and it's nasty. I encourage you to read the passages sometime this week. The Benjamites are almost totally destroyed. And the last few paragraphs of Judges shows Israel beginning to grieve for this lost tribe. It's sad, isn't it, that it has come to this. One whole tribe nearly totally lost. So finally, at the end of Judges, the other 11 tribes come up together and they create a plan to rebuild Benjamin. But, surprise, surprise, it's a completely morally corrupt plan. So, let's read the last little bit of Judges and hear their depraved plan. The people grieved for Benjamin because the Lord had made a gap in the tribes of Israel. And the elders of the assembly said, with the women of Benjamin destroyed, how shall we provide wives for the men who are left? The Benjaminite survivors must have heirs, they said, so that the tribe of Israel will not be wiped out. We can't give them our daughters as wives since we Israelites have taken the oath. Cursed be anyone who gives a wife to the Benjamite. But look, there is an annual festival of the Lord in Shiloh, which lies north of Bethel east of the road that goes between Bethel to Shechem and south of Lebanon. So they instructed the Benjamites saying, go and hide in the vineyards and watch. When the, women, when the young women of Shiloh come out to join the dancing, rush from the vineyards and each of you sees one of them to be your wife, then return to the land of Benjamin. When their fathers or brothers complain to us, we will say to them, do us the favor of helping them because we did not get wives for them during the war. You will not be guilty of breaking your oath because you did not give your daughters to them. So that is what the Benjamites did. While the young women were dancing, each man caught one and carried her off to be his wife. Then they returned to their inheritance and rebuilt the towns and settled in them. At that time, the Israelites left the place and went home to their tribes and clans, each to his own inheritance. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. Okay, good. Right, let's crack on. Three grim stories. Goodness, like what are these doing in the Bible? It's, it's no surprise that Steve's gone on sabbatical and he leaves me to, to speak at these. Okay, three grim stories. But as always with scripture, as we peer into the details of the narrative, we find some very, very significant truths. As we peer into the details, we realise why this is here. So here's what we're going to do. First, we're going to identify the problem behind the problem. Then second, we're going to think about the remedy. Now, as I always say, I'm definitely someone with a short attention span, so I'm going to move really quickly through a long chunk of the Bible. But please, please do try and stay with me as we go. As we get to the end, I think you'll begin to see the richness in this passage, but it'll take a little bit of work getting there. So... Some of you may be able to cast your mind back to the start of Judges when we first started looking at the book of Judges, a couple of months ago, I think. The book of Jewish history started with the Israelites fully and finally taking possession of the promised land. As Judges begins, the Israelites have at last made the complete transition from slaves in Egypt 
to inhabitants of a rich and beautiful land, flowing with milk and honey. Judges 1 and 2, Israelites in paradise, flowing with milk and honey. And all this because of the Lord's love and faithfulness to them. It was the Lord who set them free from Egypt. We remember that with Moses. We've all seen um, Prince of Egypt. Amazing film, amazing story. The Lord set them free. He then drives them through the desert, carries them through. And the Lord then, best of all, made the great city of Jericho fall so Israel could move into this promised land. The Lord had been so good to Israel. And at the beginning of Judges 1 and 2, health and prosperity reigned in the nation. It was good. However, amidst all the good, the Lord had given the Israelites one clear warning at the start of chapter 2. Start of chapter 2. The Lord says, break down all the altars and the idols. Otherwise, this is chapter 2, verse 3, they will become traps for you and their gods will become snares for you. Get rid of all the local religions, says the Lord. Have one God and one God only. He says, if, if you, it is good here in the promised land and if you want it to stay good, do not worship the things the locals worship. That's the really clear warning. You see, Yahweh, the Hebrew name for our God, is a jealous God. He does not like being shared. He will not tolerate being part worshipped. Like a husband to the wife he loves, so is Yahweh to his people, we're told over and over again in the Old and New Testament. He will not tolerate his people having any other lovers. Like a good husband to his wife, he's not going to have any lovers. He doesn't do affairs. And that was his warning to Israel. Things are good, but if you want it to remain like this, then no idolatry, no self-made religion, only Yahweh. But here's the problem. Surprise, surprise, the Israelites didn't listen. They sort of listened, but they didn't take it all that seriously. They weren't ruthless, you see. Yes, they kept on being Hebrews and vaguely following Yahweh, but they allowed other idols to creep in and to begin to become more important. And in the end, this inability to be ruthless with their idols had disastrous effects. Because here's the trend we see in Judges. At first, the people worship Yahweh. Chapters 1 and 2, it's all good. They worship Yahweh, but they let the idols remain. But, you know, they still worship Yahweh. Doesn't seem so bad. Yet fast forward a number of years and we begin to get to Micah, the first story we read. The idols have become the most important thing. By the time you get to chapter 17, authentic faith has completely crumbled. You see, following Yahweh simply does not work if we don't put him first and foremost in our lives. It doesn't work. If the Lord does not have complete supremacy in our hearts, then the whole pillars of our faith begin to crumble. Yahweh doesn't do second place. The creator of heaven and earth doesn't do second place. So by the time we hit chapter 17, we find a people in utter ruins. That's what we've just read. A people in utter ruins, shambles. But here's the key thing Judges wants us to get. Where did it all begin? Well, it began with just a little hint of unfaithfulness, just a little hint. The Israelites allowed the local idols, they allowed the snares and the traps to remain. It's not so much that they blatantly worshipped them, but they just didn't knock them down. They just let them sit there. By the time we get to chapter 17, the wheels have completely come off. So, look at Micah's brand of Judaism. We read it, it's the first, the first story there on your handout. Look at his brand of Judaism. Do you see it? Chapter 17 on the handout, it's complete nonsense. Okay, this hasn't been pinned up as, like, as authentic religion. No, it's nonsense. It's comedy. It's utter gobbledygook. In verse 3, his mother consecrates the silver that Micah had initially stolen to the Lord, whatever consecrating silver to the Lord means. And then Micah takes back this silver that he'd stolen from his mother, but then given back and uses it to build an idol, something the Lord completely condemns. 
And then a little while later, a Levite comes by. Now, Levites were the only Jewish tribe allowed to be priests. And Micah grabs the Levite that passes by his house and says, oh, great, great, a Levite. Listen, you come and be my priest and look after my shrine for me. And lo and behold, that's what the Levite does. Now, here's the curious thing that I think we're meant to get. Somewhere in here with Micah, somewhere in here are aspects of authentic Israelite religion. Okay, yes, at least, you know, at least Micah remembers the whole Levite thing. There's something, something in here that's based on an original authentic Judaism. But on the whole, his brand of self-made religion has descended into complete farce. A silver shrine to Yahweh run by a Levite priest. That's not a thing. Okay, that isn't a thing. That's nonsense. That contravenes everything Yahweh ever commanded. But this is what has happened in Israel. Faith has crumbled and it's been replaced by each person trying to figure out their own personal brand. It's, I'll have a bit of this, a bit of that type stuff. That's what Micah's doing. Bit of this, bit of that. As I say, Micah is the kind of person you meet. I hear this the whole time. He's the kind of person you meet who would say, you know, I'm not like a full-on Christian or anything. but, But, says Micah, I do have faith. I have a personal spirituality. And actually, do you know, I actually really like some of the stories in the Bible. And, and I sometimes go to church. I, I like going. I do like going. But, but, says Micah, you know, faith is every man for himself. I like to choose for myself what I consider important. Faith is what you make of it. And it's good to decide for yourself what bits you want and what bits you don't. That's what Micah says. Bit of this, bit of that. Every man for himself. You decide. That says Micah. Sound familiar? I think Micah would fit in really quite well in modern Dublin. A bit of this, a bit of that. Some local religion, some idolatry, my own moral code, but then mixed in with a little bit of traditionalism as well. You know, I still go to church at Christmas, you know, just for good measure. Throw a Levite priest into the mix and you're all grand. This, says the author of Judges, is what Israel has become. And remember, this is the key point, remember it all started with just a little bit of idolatry, a little bit of local religion, but by now it has descended into complete farce. And here's the crucial problem. Do you see it in 17 verse 6? On the first page of the handout, 17 verse 6. At the start of Judges, the Lord is meant to be Israel's king, but because all authentic religion has failed, because they booted the king out and his laws out of the promised land, they now have no king. That's 17 verse 6. It's like the key theme in this passage. The Lord was meant to be their king, but they've rejected him. They are kingless. Every person now does as they see fit. And what's the consequence? Complete moral chaos. Complete moral depravity. So do you see the trend here in Judges? Do you see the slippery slope? Step one, faith. Genuine faith. But the idols remain. The altars aren't knocked down. Fast forward and it's not long until we're down at step two. Everyone has their own self-made religion where the idols reign. The desire for idolatry has become dominant and religion, just as it was with Micah, is now completely organised around the idols. They're now first and foremost. And what are we left with? Well, a hodgepodge of DIY religion. Step three, meaningless faith. There is no king left in Israel. And we descend into moral chaos, depravity. That is the slope of Judges. That's like the, the main theme in Judges. And the key thing, as I say, to get is it all started at stage one. Genuine faith but just with a little bit of idolatry. And it didn't seem so bad at first. It seemed pretty normal. But it was the rot that ruined everything. That's why we've been preaching on Judges for two months. And 3,000 years later, we read this passage, and it's a stark warning for us. And here's the question today. Do you hear the warning? Where are we on that slippery slope? Where are we? 
So let's remind ourselves of what an idol is in 21st century Dublin. I've, I've personally, and I'm sure you're the same, I've never been tempted to steal my mother's silver and build it into an idol. She probably does have more silver than she's meant to have, and it would be good to get rid of it. I've never been tempted to build it all together in an idol and worship it. I haven't. But of course, daily, I'm tempted to worship all other sorts of silver. Oh, all other sorts of idols. So what does our local culture in this day and age worship? What do we worship here? Where do we put up the, older, uh, the altars? As we know, an idol is anything we worship, anything we treat as more important than the Lord, anything that takes first place ahead of him. And remember, in this marriage, Yahweh doesn't do second place. He doesn't tolerate other lovers. So what's your idol? Well, maybe it's career. For many of us, for many of us in this city, it's career. Do we worship our career? Is our job, our future prospects, ultimately first and foremost in our lives? When the church asks for one thing, but our career shouts for another, where do we fall? Is that our idol? Or, or is it romantic love? Is that ultimately what we worship? Think how much we sing about romantic love in this day and age. Sure, our faith might help us along the way as we chase romantic love. Indeed, being a believer might be useful. It might even help us find the one. But ultimately, if romantic love leads us in one direction, but Christ calls us in another, do we side with the idol? Or is it sporting success? Will we ultimately do anything to succeed on the pitch? Again, Christ might help us along the way. He might help us sort of deal with our, with, our, with our insecurities on the pitch. But ultimately, we know where our heart is truly set. Or is it fun and adventure? Is it good holidays, good crack? Is that the number one? Does that take precedence over Christ? Which idols are we tempted to worship? Do you remember the story of the rich young ruler in Mark 10? He's a good guy, really nice guy, nice fella. And he comes to Jesus and he says, Jesus, I want eternal life. And Jesus says, well, mate, if you want eternal life, you'll have to make me number one in your heart. So he says, am I more important to you than your money? What does the rich young ruler say in Mark 10? He says, ah, I can't do that. I like you, Jesus, but money is my God. And he walks away. So what is your God today? That's what Judges is asking us. What is your idol? Money, career, success, romance, adventure. What is it? Where are the idols? Where are the altars in 21st century Dublin? Where are we tempted to go and bow down? Is there anything you couldn't give up for Christ? That's tough. I mean, as I say, I don't, I don't speak as one who's sort of conquered this stuff. I speak as one who's in the battle. And how good it's been to spend two weeks thinking about idolatry and spotting it over and over again in my life. The altars that I've got to knock down. Because do remember that these things aren't bad things. No, not at all. A career is a really good thing. Money, of course, is a really good thing. Love is a really good thing. Sport, fun, adventure, these are good things. But they must never be the best thing. They must never be the altar that we go down and worship. So we must always ask ourselves, could I give them up for Christ? Or do they come first? Because if they do... Hear the warning of judges. Please hear it. Two months of going through this ancient book. Please hear the warning at the end of it. There is a slippery slope and it is one that the Israelites fell down. First we have faith, but allow the idols to remain. And it isn't long until, like Micah, we begin to organise our faith around our idols. What remains? A self-made hodgepodge of meaningless religion. But with a bit of tradition thrown in for good measure. But with a Levite priest anyway. And what's the problem with self-made religion? Well, in self-made religion, the self is king. And if oneself is king, well, then really there is no king at all. 
And life without a king so easily gives way to moral chaos and even depravity. Genuine faith, but with idols, leading to self-made religion, leading to moral chaos. That's the slope of judges. That's where the Israelites slipped. Are you in danger of slipping too? Oh, okay, let's pause for a moment. We're nearly there. Pause for a moment. Let's breathe out. Because you might be hearing this and you might want to say, just hold on a second. Hold on. Okay, yes, I have a little bit of self-made religion. Yes, there are other things more important than me than faith. But come on. Like, I really don't think that's too much of a problem. That's maybe what you're thinking. Come on, you might say. I think, I think you're overreacting a bit here. A little bit of idolatry, sure. But that doesn't lead to male moral chaos and depravity. Give us a break. Come on. That's probably a natural thing to, to think. Well, unfortunately, the author of Judges would disagree. The history of Israel would beg to differ. You see, if the Lord is not your king, then you have no king. And if you have no king, then who will tell you right and wrong? So look at 17 verse 6. I pointed to it at the start. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. This is the chorus of Judges, the repeated line. This is the key line of the last five chapters. Half repeated in 18 verse 1, Israel had no king. Then 19 verse 1, I don't think it's on your handout, Israel had no king. And lastly, flip over to the very last page of the handout, the last line of Judges, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. Or as the ESV, a slightly older translation, puts it, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And the shocking thing is in these passages that that is exactly what we see. It's not that the people of Israel have become simply malicious evildoers, hell-bent on destruction. No, it's unfortunately not that simple. It's that they genuinely think they're trying to do the right thing. This is a nation in Judges where each individual does what she or he thinks is right in their own eyes. This is a nation where there is no king. Morals are subjective, each to their own. Sound familiar? Okay, so very quickly, let's look at the horrific story in chapter 19. Do you see it there on the handout, chapter 19? It starts with a kind old man being hospitable. Starts on a good note. Verse 20 and 21, come and stay with me. Make yourselves at home, stranger. You see, the Israelites had always been commanded to be, to be hospitable to strangers. It was one of the key pillars of being God's chosen people, be hospitable. But hospitable, is, and hospitable is exactly what this man is. But the shocking thing is, there's then undertones of the same command in verse 22. So the interesting thing is that the Hebrew word used by the men as they bang on the door and demand to have sex with a stranger is actually a word with a bit of a double meaning. It's kind of like the word to know. They are saying, send out this man so that we may know him. Now, I think in some ways, getting to know strangers is exactly what God had originally commanded the Israelites to do. So do you see what's happened here? They've twisted what was the good and turned it into what they now demand to be the good. So there are elements of right doing throughout these passages. But in the hands of people who have no king, elements of right doing descend in complete farce and even evil. That's what's so horrific about what the old man does next. He offers up his virgin daughter and his guest partner to their rampant sexual cravings. And shockingly, somehow, that's why it can be a bit confusing to read these passages, because somehow there's actually a sense that the old man thinks he's doing the right thing. There's that sense that he thinks, ah, oh, you know, I've, I've got a good solution here. This is a sort of noble deed. Well, of course it's not a noble deed. And we're meant to read it and think, oh, my goodness. 
life without a king, what does it look like? Because then after the brutal death of the concubine, the Levite cuts her up, again, as if this was like the sort of correct, sensible, wise way to respond. No, no, this whole story is moral nonsense. It's moral chaos, spiritual and moral gobbledygook, people doing what they personally, according to their own individual moral judgment, think to be right. But they get it horrendously wrong. Similarly to the last chapter, Again, in the last chapter, there's moments of good there. There's flashes of nobility. Israel in the last chapter all meet together and they're grieved by the loss of a tribe. They want to forgive. They want to love. They want to strive for unity again. That's good. That's a good thing. Oh, but what's their solution? Because they've made a foolish oath. They are too cowardly to overcome this oath. They decide instead the solution is to encourage the Benjaminites to steal and pillage the young woman of Shiloh instead. So... Judges ends on this grim note of men being officially commanded to capture and enslave helpless women. A complete contravening of God's good laws. We're meant to be catching the great irony here. Do you see why this is so ironic? Why is it ironic? Because why did the civil war begin? Well, in the first place, it began because a group of men took a woman against her will. They took that Levite's concubine. She was sent out to satisfy their sexual urges. They totally against her will. And yet now, what's the solution to the civil war? The solution, apparently, according to Israel, is to command a whole tribe of men to take a whole tribe of women against their will. So talk about two wrongs don't rake a right. Israel has descended into moral chaos, sheer and utter depravity, moral and spiritual gobbledygook. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. It's grim, it's grim stuff. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Well, hold on a second. Doesn't that phrase actually sound a little bit like the type of ethic that we praise today? Each to his own. No judgment. YOLO, anything goes. No one has the right to tell you how to live your life, your best life now, each to their own. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Because it's literally the very mantra that we pin up as the key value in our postmodern society. Morals are completely subjective. Right is whatever you see right to be, whatever you feel it to be. And don't let anyone tell you otherwise. But here's the problem. The Bible over and over again tells us that our feelings, our instincts, our thoughts, our fears, our motives, that whirlpool of my inner desires are never, never an accurate moral guide. Just because I feel like doing something does not make it right. And actually, isn't that just obvious? When it comes to making moral decisions, I have so much skin in the game. I'm so obviously biased because I've got this whirlpool of inner desires. How am I meant to sit back and make an objective call on what is right and wrong in my life? How can I ever trust myself to make a right decision? No, I need a king. I need a king to show me right and wrong, even when it goes against that whirlpool of my feelings. And that's exactly what we see in Judges. Each man, each woman doing what was right in their own eyes. And it doesn't work. It doesn't work. A whirlpool of emotions clutter our moral compass. That's what happened to the Israelites. That's what happens to us. It didn't work then. I'm afraid it won't work now. Just because I feel like doing something doesn't make it right. No, I need a king. But here's the problem. Who can be my king? Another person with an equally flawed heart as mine? No, that's not going to work. 
But indeed, over the following centuries, as we flick forward and, and, and run really quickly through Israelites' history, we would begin to see that in the following centuries, that's what Israel tries. Israel had no king. Well, they try to fix the problem themselves. They, they have a human solution to a spiritual problem. They appoint their own kings, human kings. And okay, there were brief moments when it worked. David and Solomon had brief moments of ruling well, but then their flaws poured through as well. Israel retreats to the same depravity as before and over and over again in the histories that follow. Israel needed a king, but who could that be? Well, this is, isn't it remarkable? This was one of the first things that so struck me deeply when I first started um, studying theology at university. How remarkable it is that the whole Bible joins together to form one cohesive, accurate unit. So don't forget, this is not one book when we talk about the Bible. It's not one book. No, this is 66 different books written by roughly 40 different authors from, from different languages, cultures, backgrounds, written over a vast period of time of probably much more than a 1,000 years. And yet at all stages, you can see God's hand on it, pointing forward to what is to come. In those days, Israel had no king. Last line of Judges. It all fits together. Because many, many, many centuries later, enter a man who proclaims the kingdom of God. Enter Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, the Christ. All these terms that we give Jesus are terms very much taken from royal Hebrew language, terms used to talk about a king. Most explicitly of all, eh? what's the sign pinned above Jesus' head as he dies on the cross? What's that sign? This is the king of the Jews. Israel had no king. A thousand years later, this is the king of the Jews. Isn't it remarkable how the whole Bible holds together? Judges ends on such a sour note, and yet centuries later, we realize it was all part of the plan. Here is the book leaving us yearning for a king. Fast forward centuries on, in Jesus rides to Jerusalem, and what do the people cry? Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. I need a king. Israel needs a king. We need a king. Well, here he is, right, riding into Jerusalem. But how different this king is to all others. You see, in Christ, we have a king who came to serve, not to be served. We have a king who doesn't force his people to die for him, but rather dies for his people. We have a king who is not life-taking, but life-giving. A king who is not defeated by death, but rather defeats death itself. A very unusual king and a king worth following. And the question as we finish up, judges, is, is he your king today? This is a king who dies for us, who takes the punishment we deserve so that we can enter his kingdom. And isn't that great news? Because no matter how many times, even this week, I have rejected him as king, failed him as king, spat at him, insulted him, and quite frankly, done the complete opposite of what I know this king wants for me, I can still come back. Because he has made the way, he has paid the price. Like the shepherd who searches everywhere, for his lost sheep until he finds it. Here is a king who welcomes us home. Is he your king today? But remember, what does it mean for Christ to be your king? It means no longer being ruled by your wants, your desires, your needs. No, it means being ruled by his wants, his desires, his needs, even when it hurts. Even when we crave something else. Christ is our king and we side with him against our cravings. Israel had no king. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Well, not so with the believer. Christ is our king. Even when everything in us and all those around us shout for something else, because when Christ is our king, we trust that if we seek his kingdom first, then all these things will be given unto you. Matthew 6, verse 33. Seek ye first the kingdom of God, and all these things 
will be given unto you. Seek first the king and his kingdom. So, lastly, doesn't this answer the classic question? Have you ever been asked this? I get asked it quite a lot. Well, if Christ has died for all my sins, why can't I just go on sinning? Well, the answer is because Christ died for us to bring us into his kingdom so that he might be our king, right? So to be a believer, when you're saved, if we want to use that language, when you're saved, you're saved for him to be your king. You're saved into his kingdom. He becomes your king. So if you merrily go on living as you choose, sinning as you want, well, then he's not really your king. And then are you really a believer? Are you living in his kingdom if he's not your king? To be a Christian is to be saved into his kingdom, to have him as king. And therefore, it's not to go on living as we choose, sinning as we want. No, it's to have him as king. And remember that life in this kingdom, well, it's life to the full. It's life with purpose. It's life with meaning. It's life with direction. Oh, it's life with fulfillment. And most importantly, best of all, way better than everything else, it's life that never ends. Because the kingdom of God, well, it's an eternal kingdom. It doesn't end at death. Israel had no king until Christ came. Is he your king today? Is he calling the shots? Or are you calling the shots? The king calls the shots. Is he your king today? And if he is your king, do you see the world's greatest need? In chapter 19, Israel started civil war to purge the nation of, as they saw it, a few bad men. And don't we do the same today? How quick we are to blame all of society's problems on a few bad people. How quick we are to blame all of society's problems on a few bad corporations, a few bad leaders, a few bad errors in judgment at the voting polls. But no, 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 says judges. The problem is with each one of us. The problem is that each of us have in our own way rejected the king, booted him out of our hearts and our world. The heart of the human problem, says judges, is the problem of the human heart. We need a king, all of us. That is the world's greatest problem. So will you bring them the king this week? What are you doing this week? Will you remember that the king is alive and his name is Jesus Christ? Will you tell that to your colleagues, your teammates, your friends, your family this week? They need a king. Will you tell them? Do not be cowed into silence by a culture that says, no, 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 each to their own. Faith is fine, but please keep it to yourselves, each to their own. Let each person do what they consider right. No, says Christianity. No, says our authentic faith. There is a king and the world needs him. The world must have him. Will you make him known this week? Coming up is the banquet next week. And the, at the banquet, we will invite many people who are really struggling, really, really struggling. We'll invite them into this church for a meal and more many of them homeless. And we'll try and meet their earthly needs, and we must, because Christians are practical. We help people where they are at. But at the same time, we must not forget next week that the very most important part of the banquet will be when Matthew gets up to speak. Because there will be people in this church next week with some desperate needs. But I can promise you this, judges can promise you this, that the most pressing need of all will be with those who are living without a king. We need a king. Will you point people to this king this week? Let's pray. Oh, Lord Jesus, thank you so much that despite all the times I've rejected you as king, still you come and seek me. And Lord, I ask that you would give me the strength to live with you as king today, that you will rule over my feelings, my passions, my desires, that you instead would be king. 
And Father, I pray for myself and each one of us here. I pray that you would give me an opportunity, us an opportunity this week to tell others about that King. In Jesus' name, amen.